Welcome to That Anthro Podcast, the podcast dedicated to anthropology. Together, each week, we will be learning from the experts and researchers that are researching our pasts and today's problems. My name is Gabriella Campbell, and I'll be interviewing a new guest each week to bring to you the latest and greatest in anthropology. Join me for weekly episodes, whether you're an anthropology buff or looking to learn something new. Welcome to That Anthro Podcast. All right, listeners, welcome back to That Anthro Podcast. Today, I'm recording one of the very few episodes in person uh, with Dr. Hagen Klaus, who is um, one of my professors at George Mason University. So welcome, Dr. Klaus. It is wonderful to be here, Gabriella. I really do appreciate it. And like you said, yeah, I'm Hagen Klaus. I'm a um, um, associate professor of anthropology here in the Department of Sociology and Anthropology at uh, GMU. And um, as far as I hear sort of through the rumors, uh, I'm probably going to be, um, well, got the letter from the president of the, United, of the president from the university. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm, Biden, yeah. Biden sent you a personal <laughs> correspondence. No, he did not. Uh, <laughs> Around here, I wouldn't be surprised. But, you know. yeah, but the president of the university um, with the letter indicating that uh, my uh, promotion to full professor nice. uh, is um, uh, literally around the corner. Probably Lovely. next week, we'll hear about the news. Exciting. So I'm very excited about that. Yes, yeah. congrats. Yeah. Well, thank you for taking the time to do this. We've It's, it's been kind of getting pushed We've been down trying. the road, I know, but we yeah. made it happen. <laughs> Um, and actually, I TA'd for Dr. Klaus my first semester, which was very fun. I really enjoyed TAing for you. You were an awesome TA. Oh, thank you. Yes. So that was intro to BioAnth. Um, but before we talk about his journey as, you know, an anthropologist, as a professor, we're going to talk about where were you born and raised? Where does the journey of Hagen start? Well, it's, it's kind of funny because both, um, I think, people here in the United States and also in Peru, when they hear my name. I think they sort of picture sort of a, a much older German scholar, perhaps with mm. the, you know, white hair and a, a very large sort of beer belly. Yeah. But, and then they meet me and they said, who is this person? <laughs> you know, and um, I once was you know mistaken for a, for an undergraduate and I said, no, no, I'm, I'm a professor. <laughs> but, um, but no, uh, with a, a name like mine, right. You'd think that I'm, I'm European, but uh, I'm a Long Islander. I was born and raised on the East end of Long Island. And um, sometimes you can still hear the traces of my mm-hmm. accent and, um, you know, talking to friends, you know, from childhood on the phone or whatever, I can still bring it back. So I can say, hey, or in class, or in class sometimes, yeah, so in <laughs> class, you know, hey, okay, today we're going to talk about the deoxyribonucleic acids. <laughs> Forget about it. Come on, you know, so we, you looking at me? Come on. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but yeah, there's still always, a, you know, of course, some, some some words that I'll never be able to pronounce without a Long Island accent, but, um, uh, but yeah, I've, I've, uh, you know, grew, um, born and raised down the East End of Long Island. And um, uh, since then I've uh, not really ever been back because I've been, I've been elsewhere. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, quite a bit of traveling and um, work abroad and um, lived, um, um, you know, my the journey, as you say, you know, it's taken me almost well, basically, yeah, from one side of the United States to the other, and then back again. So. Yes, now you're back on the East Coast. Yeah, there and back again, like a hobbit, so. Yes. <laughs> Had to get that in there. Yes. Um, 
so uh, I know both from stories you've told me and, and my own research that uh, you grew up building scale model airplanes. Yeah. And um, you're now a nationally recognized aviation photographer. So how did you become interested in military aviation? It's, it's an interesting um, side of my life. I'd say that half of my life is purely and, and, and solely dedicated to my love of anthropology and bioarchaeology. And the other half of my life is purely and solely dedicated to um, aviation-related matters, okay. uh, airplanes. And um, yeah, it's it's and of course it does connect to my existence as an anthropologist today yes. in an interesting way. But um, the way that it kind of um, uh, worked out for me is that you know I grew up on the East End of Long Island, and my parents were both teachers, mm-hmm. and. Um, uh, mom was uh, a, a reading teacher, and in fact, she taught you know from kindergarten to college. So she was a very versatile teacher. Uh, she was the person actually that got me interested in pedagogy. Mm. Um, I think that was like in the tenth grade or something uh, when she was teaching teacher or student teachers how to teach. Mm. Uh, and then I saw these books on pedagogy. And I'm like, What's this? It's somehow cu- curious to me. Um, yeah. Wanted to learn a bit more about it. But and then my dad taught fourth grade for 27 years. Oh. And uh, he said, it's always great to be a fourth grade teacher because whatever you tell those fourth graders, they will believe you. Uh, <laughs> was, it is a good age. Huh? Yeah, it is. Yeah. So, um, <clears throat> so dad, you should try teaching college sometimes. Oh, no, thanks. No, thanks. You know? <laughs> but um, but uh, but out on the east end of Long Island, we lived very close, lived almost on the beach on the north shore of Long Island, um, you know, a couple of steps away from, from the Long Island Sound. Um, I grew up on those beaches, but very close to us um, was the... Uh, production and flight test facility uh, for a company called Grumman. Hmm. And so Grumman was very famous um, uh, beginning in the 1930s for manufacturing aircraft in the United States Navy. Mm-hmm. And um, many of the uh, aircraft that won the Pacific War in the air, uh, the Hellcat, for instance, and the Wildcat and the Avenger, uh, those were Grumman aircraft hmm. that were produced out on Long Island uh, in New York. Um, and of course, you know, Grumman made the lunar excursion module, the LEM, mm-hmm. that uh, brought humans to the surface of the moon in the 1960s and the early 1970s. And then um, the uh, probably the most famous product besides the LEM uh, was the F-14 Tomcat. And that's the plane that Tom Cruise, young Tom Cruise, flies mm-hmm. in the very first Top Gun movie. And then hopefully no spoilers here. Ready? Okay. Uh, he flies also um, uh, a fake CGI um, uh, F-14 Tomcat in the you know, the last couple scenes of Top Gun Maverick, uh, which is the new movie. And um, yeah, so so at, at Calverton is the little town called Calverton, very rural, um, sort of very close to where the, the, the North Fork of Long Island and the South Fork of Long Island kind of split. Um, there's a big bay between them. Um, so yeah, they, they, they had this, this huge, um, you know, flight test facility. Uh, for both experimental, um, you know, test flying, uh, and then production flying for the, all the planes that they built. So before, you know, it would go to the Navy, um, you know, it had to be made sure that it was a sound aircraft mm-hmm. in good working order. Yeah. Um, and so, um, uh, you know, one day, I think I was in the fourth grade, my dad and I were just driving past the airfield. And um, uh, all of a sudden, um, I mean, this the sky split open with sound. Yeah. And didn't you know didn't really kind of knew that that was an airfield but at that point you know it was obscure. going on there yeah my parents knew but i, I yeah. you know, had no interest um i like dinosaurs at that point yeah. right uh, i went through that phase too still kind of like dinosaurs yeah. too. but um 
I have a good reading in my next uh, paleopathology uh, seminar class on the case of osteomyelitis in the T-Rex, but uh, that's not important right now. So, um, <laughs> but um, yeah, the, um, so, so, I mean, these F-14s came out of nowhere. They were, you know, just, just, you know, tearing up the sky. And it was also um, an extraordinarily beautiful aircraft in, mm. in, in the air, um, really an elegant flying machine. And um, probably why they had Tom Cruise fly that one. Yeah, maybe, maybe. <laughs> yes. Um, it's a good match, perhaps. I don't know. But uh, but anyway, so the idea there is that, you know, um, we got to know people that worked there over the years. Um, and, you know, you could literally sit out in, by the road, by the fence, which is right by the runway. And um, you get buzzed by these 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 jets taking off, landing, um, doing all kinds of flight tests. And um, it's probably one of the reasons uh, today why I have some hearing loss. <laughs> Plus all the years later that I've yes. also spent with airplanes and flying airplanes and so forth. But, um, but yeah, so uh, one day, and so anyways, that, that first, that first event, right? Yeah. That first introduction to the F-14. Um, and um, my dad, after that, said, let's go to the hobby shop. <laughs> and so we went to the nearby hobby shop in Middle Island, uh, New York, and um, got a snap tight snap fit together yeah. um you know a model kit of an f-14 which i still have yes uh and uh, um, that's when i started building model airplanes and i haven't stopped and so it's a, it's one of my side hustles mm -hmm. if i can put it that way so sometimes you know it, it's good to have a balanced life between anthropology which is hard because it 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 you know, your love and your passion for anthropology, for bioarchaeology, it drives you, it gets you out of bed in the morning. Uh, it focuses your energy and your being sometimes, right? Mm -hmm. um, because, you know, the way that I feel about my bioarchaeology career is that I'm, a, I'm on a mission, right? <laughs> there's, there's, there's something, I'm, I'm in service of something bigger than myself. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, it's a little hard to put in the words even, I think, but, yeah. uh, but it's also good to have that balanced with, um, you know, outside stuff. <laughs> so for, sure. for me, it's this, this history of, of aviation and interest in aviation. So, um, so yeah, I never stopped building model airplanes yeah. and um, I got better over the years and um, I became a very active member in uh, what's called the International Plastic Modeler Society, which is, I don't know, hundred thousand people across the world that also build model airplanes. Um, and so the types of models that I build um, are, um, uh, they're, they're artistic. Mm. And so there's an artistic element to it, but there's also a technical aspect of it, which is that, uh, you know, you're trying to create sort of technically the most realistic replica that you can. Um, and that literally goes down to, you know, the accuracy and the precision of, you know, where bolts are on mm. the outside of okay. the airplane or where a particular, you know, cable bundle runs through mm. a, a cockpit, for instance, um, or what an ejection seat, you know, really looks like. Um, and so it's, you know, sort of, sort of hyper-realistic type of modeling. And um, um, so, yeah, I've, I've won, you know, various national awards for the work that I've done. And um, it caught the attention of a um, very well-known um, uh, person in the aviation reference world, mm. a guy named Bert Kinsey. And actually, the very first book I ever got, aviation reference book, was a detail and scale series book. That's the name of the company, Detail and Scale, written by Bert Kinsey on the F-14 when I think I was probably about 10, right, from the same hobby shop that I mentioned before. And, um, and he saw my work and, you know, I said, would you like to do some, some editorial work? Would you like to 
um, you know, maybe do some photography for us? And I said, yes and yes. And uh, so I've been sort of, you know, working um, at detail and scale on the side uh, for, well, I guess since 2014. And in 2017, uh, Bert said, well, you know, you should, should probably start writing books for us. And well, I can write. <laughs> yeah. I've done books before. Um, and and I've got, I wonder what plane he would choose to write well, the book on. Not quite yet, actually. Yeah. So oh, okay. I, I cut my teeth sort of, it's, it's where sort of where the detail and scale line, it's 120 books over the last, you know, 45 years in the series. Wow. Um, and so uh, it was sort of okay. Where do we need? Where's there's you know, a market niche or whatever mm-hmm. um, for for these books? And so the first book I did was on the Super Hornet, okay. which was the plane that Tom Cruise quote unquote flies uh, in the the second Top Gun movie, um, because we didn't really have a book on that, and it was you know commercially a smart move. Mm-hmm. But then the second book I said, hey, I'd like to write the book on the F-14, mm-hmm. and Bert did one in 1982, and it hadn't been updated, and. Um, uh, so, so yeah, that was a very significant labor of love and sort of a investment of like my personal existence, right? Because when I was a kid, you know, those people who, you know, influenced me the most, like I love my baseball players and rock stars, right? But, mm-hmm. but no, for me, who were they, right? Um, who were the most important? And those were the test pilots that I knew. Mm-hmm. Um, the, you know, my first flight instructor was a Tomcat test pilot, mm-hmm. right? Did very unnatural things in the Cessna. Um, <laughs> just seeing if I, you know, I was like, yeah, let's, that's okay. I'll do this again on Tuesday. <laughs> Didn't freak me out, but, um, I learned what inverted flight was and why, um, uh, fuel pressure, uh, drops off uh, to an engine and causes the engine to stop when you're upside down. Uh, <laughs> it's a moment never forget. Uh, but you know, there's the engineers, uh, you know, who applied mathematics and science to, you know, creating these machines, um, now, of course, today, you know, I have a much more complicated sort of relationship with these things because um, all that is true, but I also, um, you know, deeply and profoundly reject things that kill people and break things. Yeah. Um, and especially if it's in, you know, um, pursuit of, you know, forms of foreign policy mm-hmm. that I, I, I can't support or yeah. I find or immoral. Or military conquest or... Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, there's a, there's definitely a tension there, but, <laughs> but the point is, is that with the, with the model building stuff, um, uh, you know, that's, it's, it's an interesting creative outlet mm-hmm. um, and it's a way to sort of connect to, um, you know, people who, you know, I've, I've been very close to over the years, um, you know, folks who are like family in some mm-hmm. ways. So, and also my memories and yeah. my growing up years. And, you know, I see, you know, that, that little model of the first one that my dad got me mm-hmm. now that he's gone that's him he's yeah. still there may he rest in peace oh thank you very yeah. much but yeah it's it's um uh yeah it's, it's an interesting thing it's a great yeah. hobby though it's a lot of it fun is. Yeah. and is it true that before being an archaeologist you wanted to be a military aviator oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah i was actually beginning the process of in i think it was the 11th grade of reaching out to my uh, congressman and starting the ex- exploration of mm. the application to the United States Naval Academy. And my uncle didn't like that because he wanted me to join the Air Force. He was, oh. a, he was a big Air Force um, um, uh, person um, and was very you know, influential in a lot of you know, um, aircraft programs. Mm. But, um, but yeah, and, and so not long after that process started, um, I realized that I had like 10-10 vision. Mm, yeah. And um, things started to get a little bit blurry. Mm. I remember, you know, looking across the library uh, one day and I couldn't quite see the people on the far end, you know, as crystal clear as I did before. That happened to me in high school too. Uh, 
yeah so um so yeah I, I was despondent right and here's here's where the sort of the how did I get into anthropology story mm -hmm. comes right so like the last two years of high school I was just like whatever dude you know and I was not um very excited or engaged I mean I liked you know AP American history and I liked political uh, uh was the philosophy of politics class that I took um and you know sort of finding some of your strengths I guess you know yeah. intellectually but nothing ever clicked same thing happened when I went to college and so college, I, I tried to get as far away from Long Island as possible. And I know, right? You didn't go very far. <laughs> well, no, I went as far as I could. Within the state. Uh, within the state, yeah. In-state tuition. Ah, yes. <laughs> I'm just thinking. Yes. <laughs> it's poor. <laughs> but, yes. Um, but no, uh, so yeah, I went all the way up about 30 minutes south of Montreal, or 45 no, sorry, 65 minutes south of Montreal, about 30, 35 minutes to the Canadian border was Plattsburgh, New York on Lake Champlain. They had a SUNY school there. And I was like, okay, whatever. And um, I did get decent grades in in high school so I was invited to join the honors program mm -hmm. which was um, run by a philosopher named uh, David Mowry mm -hmm. Dr. David Mowry he was my first mentor and arguably the first person who saved me from myself mm -hmm. but um, despite his wonderful guidance and, and warmth and charisma and knowledge and and you know tutelage um, I tried all these different majors in college and I could what were some of them. Oh yeah, I tried journalism because okay. I, I thought that yeah. journalism is interesting, right? Mm -hmm. And it's an important profession, but it never really quite clicked. I blame the professor. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> it wasn't it yeah. wasn't it wasn't a good uh, scene there. But um, and then I tried um, I did history for a while, and that was oddly unsatisfying. Yeah. Now I know why. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but. Um, yeah, for some people, it's great, right? That's wonderful. But yeah, for me, it just didn't quite click. Um, I was an art major for a while. Okay. Because, you know, I do have various, you know, proclivity for, yeah. you know, artistic stuff. Um, and my favorite was welding um, metal mm. sculptures, setting metal on fire and making <laughs> stuff out of them. That was, that yeah. was enjoyable. Yeah. Hear um, me. <laughs> Yeah, you didn't know that I welded, did you? No, I didn't. I probably can't do it anymore. I'd have to start from the beginning and relearn how to like make welds. But um, I could see yeah. you in Temple in your retirement, like welding. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. sculptures to uh, uh, to academia or something. Oh. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, so. <laughs> I can see it though. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that would be fun. Uh, actually, I see us actually just like um, you know getting on the boat and going fishing. Really, yeah, yeah. I don't see either of you as fishers. That's very interesting. Oh yeah. We, yeah. Good to know. Oh, yeah. Ocean fishing or river uh, lake fishing? Either. Okay. Either or is fine by me. Yeah, I, I love, prefer I love, ocean fishing. I love being out on the water. Yeah. And it feels like a natural place for me. For um, sure. But uh, like that one time that we went um, uh, swimming with uh, whales in Hawaii, oh. the two of us. Yeah. It's a very interesting experience. But um, anyway, um, but yeah, so um, so I tried a bunch of stuff and then end of my sophomore, I tried computer, um, a computer major. What is that called? It's, um, computer science computer science yeah thank you um it's been a while uh, no it took me yeah, a second to get there too right, yeah. i did think i was i like things with computers and code but um that really did not click either and so at that point i was pretty pretty um freaked out because everybody was in my life was saying you have to find what you're going to do and yeah. you know at that point so i was like okay fine i quit hmm. and so i was processing the paperwork to drop out of college and on, I was going to join the Air National Guard over in Vermont. Oh. It was the mid-90s. The world was at peace. 
what could go wrong, right? Uh, it seemed like a great, uh, you know, little yeah. career move, at least to begin with. Um, and um, yeah, so the professor who taught the introduction to biological anthropology class was a, a professor named Gordon Pollard, a Texan uh, by birth, a South American archaeologist, mm -hmm. and um, uh, upstate New York industrial archaeologist by, mm. by trade, right? And so um, I did really well in his class. And he was very, um, shall we say, he was very supportive of me. And you know, he did really good, you know? And, so, and there was always still that, that, that little voice in my head saying, you know, are you sure the military is the right choice for you? Mm -hmm. You know, are you sure you want to, you know, commit all of your energy ultimately to a purpose of maybe killing people and breaking things. And um, the response came back, no, mm -hmm. I'm not sure about that. Right. And so I mentioned it to Pollard. I said, I said, yeah, well, I might, I'm pretty sure I'm going to drop out and, you know, I'm going to um, head on out to, you know, basic training at Lackland Air Force Base for the National Guard. And, and uh, he said, well, you know, I still, with the Texan accent, of course, he says, um, he said, um, you, uh, you know, you were really good in the intro class. And I think you like archaeology. I'm like, yeah, I like archaeology. It's really neat. History, science, all that yeah. kind of stuff. Yeah. And he said, well, look, I've got this archaeological field school in the Adirondack Mountains here. And uh, it's, you know, coming up in two months. And he says, I need an extra, I, I need, uh, I need an extra hand. That's how I think he phrased it. And he said, you know, the Air Force will be there next year. You should try this. And, you know, I said, okay, I'll, I'll give it a try. One last thing before, yeah. you know, I commit to that other path, that wow. other pathway. And within the first five minutes of being on this, the ruins of a 19th century uh, ironworks, um, I, everything came together, everything clicked. In fact, it was interesting. I remember excavating part of a stone wall and sort of like the process approach to doing things and doing tests and so forth that I would use as a model builder. I was using the exact same part of my brain. I was like, hey, this is nice to see again part of that brain <laughs> in a completely different um, setting. And that really just clicked. And, and I absolutely loved it. And I realized that that, that, was, that was what I wanted to do. Yeah. And uh, again, Gordon only told me this a couple of years ago, but you know, we were rehashing that old story. And he says, he says, damn good that you, that you did uh, uh, get into that class because you know why I really needed you. The dean was going to cancel the class for low enrollment. I needed one more body. <laughs> like, awesome. You know? Yeah. It's worked out just fine. Um, but yeah, and since then, you know, I've, I've, you know, really grown very, very close uh, to Gordon and his family. So he's almost like another dad to me. And um, um, yeah, I love, love the man dearly. Yeah. I love, I love to hear about people's pivotal moments like that. Yeah. And it, I always hope that, you know, students listening are inspired by the fact that you can change what you want to do a million times yeah. until yes. it clicks. And yeah, it's scary. Yes. It's very is. scary. It is. Um, and I struggle with it, you know, myself when I switched from forensics to biowork that, I mean, I felt like a part of my heart was like, it was sad, you yeah. know, but it's Almost also, mourning. yeah, you, you mourn that, especially like for me, it was something I had like held on to for a while since I saw the show Bones. But, um, <gasps> oh my goodness, <laughs> sorry, sorry, <laughs> something in allergies, I think. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> um, 
but it for, is important. for your listeners I'm, I'm not a huge fan of the show uh, <laughs> yes um remind me to tell you a story about well I can just say now Kathy Reichs retweeted me and I was on a plane oh, really? and I was okay. and I was like like my the first episode of season two that I put out yes. of the podcast she retweeted and it was like the five minutes before you're supposed to turn your phone off and then like right the plane right. I turned to the person next to me I was like I don't need you to care, but I have to turn my phone off and I need yeah. to tell someone yeah. that some, I was like, I don't need you to know who it is. I just need to tell you. And this poor man was like, okay. great. Yeah. He was very sweet. He was like, that's awesome. Yeah. So, anyway, that on the note of both, but that's super though. That's yeah. Really cool issue. But I'm, you. Yeah. but I'm glad that, you know, we get to talk about these things to like, hopefully encourage students that like to never give up on like trying to find like what makes you happy. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to say that I have any like cogent advice. But, um, but yeah, there, there's, it's really hard. It's, it's really easy to say, but, um, you know, harder to do, obviously, and harder to walk that sort of path. Sure. But, but there was a thing that um, one of my undergraduate professors gave to me. It was a, his name, Bob Hofer, uh, calculus uh, instructor. And that's as far as I went. I in math. Yeah. Like I do a lot of stuff with, you know, statistics today yeah. uh, for the work in bioarchaeology, but, um, but calculus is a, completely different animal um yeah but yeah bob gave us this little three by five index card and stamped on it like old-fashioned like stamp right uh were two words and it's don't quit i also still have that i hang on to things obviously yeah yeah yeah. but but yeah the idea of of don't quit um hard to do sometimes easy to say uh but um but you know to kind of have that kind of i don't know aggression yeah the right kind of aggression i mean yeah but um you know, to, to, to be able to try to, you know, hang on, stick on and, and not be afraid to explore. Um, after graduating in, um, 2000, am I correct? From Mm -hmm. SUNY, you went to, sorry, Southern Illinois university for your master's. Um, and when you go Salukis, (laughs) what is a Saluki? The Saluki is the school mascot and it is, um, a very elegant, uh, Egyptian hunting dog. Oh, Salukis would, uh, historically at least, take down lions. Good for them. Yeah. Um, Are they like really skinny? Yes. Okay. Yeah, they'll, they'll remind you a little bit of a greyhound. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, in the process of getting your master's, did you always know you wanted to go on to the PhD, or was that kind of like the where you were deciding? Yeah, I think that you know there was one point during my first field school um, at the Clintonville archaeological site, the Big Ironworks. Um, and lots of really interesting archaeological evidence of uh, technological innovation and experimentation. That was one of the big research questions about the place, but uh, I remember sitting there sort of, you know, in my unit, you know, I think I was troweling some, some, you know, layer back, Uh, and of course, lots of charcoal in the matrix, and so you come come out really dirty. <laughs> Look at a coal miner. Basically, yeah. yeah. Um, yes, yeah, another Tuesday down, <laughs> finished. But um, I remember thinking to myself, you know, if I really want to do this, I'm gonna make a career out of this. I do realize that I need to have these three little letters after my name uh, to be able to be, you know, fully you know, independent mm-hmm. uh, and have like sort of the greater degree of autonomy that I would like. Yeah. Um, As Temple says, you know, yeah. being able to wear jeans and a t-shirt to work. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. If I had to work in a cubicle, right. I would, I would, I'd, I would, I couldn't, yeah. but yeah, uh, let's not ponder that any further, <laughs> yeah. you know? but um, yeah. So um, 
yeah, the, the realizing, you know, at that point, right? So I was like, hey, I want to do this, mm-hmm. right? Um, but uh, and this is a fairly personal story. So I guess well, a few listeners, good people, so I don't yeah. mind sharing it. Um, but uh, when I went to SIU, right, uh, I came out of the Plattsburgh as like, oh, this is a really great student, you know, because I did something. You know, most yeah. of, there wasn't a lot of, you know, folks that went on from there. Um, and um, in my core class, in uh, biological anthropology, I was like, hey, man, I know this stuff, you know, kind of strutting around a little bit, you know, very overly confident. And um, uh, the first, so I was like there in class with one ear and one eye open, basically. Mm-hmm. And um, I um, got my first test back. Mm-hmm. And it was like an 84. And I'm like, I don't get an 84. I get A's, you know. Mm-hmm. And the second test came back and it was a 62. I really, really screwed that up. Oh boy. Yeah. And then for those that yeah. aren't in grad school and yeah. don't know, anything lower than a B minus is not passed. That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. And um, and so <laughs> initiate existential crisis now. Right? Yes. <laughs> I got that thing back. And um uh yeah, I I I remember um you know, going home, being really kind of like, like, what's going on here? And thinking about, you know, again, pivoting to maybe a career in aviation, uh, maybe civil aviation this time, mm-hmm. I don't know, whatever. Um, and yeah, and so we had a big um, state park, uh, just uh, okay. two or three miles away from yeah. where I lived. I lived in this little tiny town called Macanda uh, in the middle of, um, of Southern Illinois, um, uh, territory there is lovely super rural very quiet very peaceful but yeah so i went to giant city state park and i went off the uh the trail where there's this big boulder a bunch of boulders you know behind that boulder where nobody could kind of see me and i just needed to pull myself together and part of that process was okay well, what am i going to do how am i going to do this um where am i going you know who am i even um and at the end of the night, that two hours sitting there watching you know the first of the fall leaves kind of yeah. come off the trees and come to the ground um i said to myself all right this ends one way and so i didn't give myself any out i didn't give myself any other opportunity or option uh for any other outcome than at least at that point completing the the, the ma mm-hmm. um and yeah so um that's kind of how that that, that sort of that second bump in the road was at that moment. I actually wound up getting an A in that class. Nice. It's like a 90 point, you know, zero one or yeah. something, but that counted as an A, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, I really, really put a lot of work into it to, to try to salvage it. But, um, but yeah. And, you know, by the time that the, you know, the, my first field season in Peru was, was complete in 2001. Uh, then it was, you know, uh, which is a couple months after that, you know, moment in the woods and hanging out, trying to figure out where am I going, what am I doing? Um, yeah, then then that I think the path was then absolutely set because mm-hmm. very very quickly Peru um, um, it didn't get in my blood; it it integrated into my DNA. I think yeah. you know, yeah, and it's become an inseparable part of me. Mm-hmm. You know, the work in Peru and the people of Peru, and um, uh, the questions that we pursue. Yeah. So. Yeah. Was that work in Peru in the same region that you still work in today? Yes, it was. Okay. Yeah. Um, so 
uh, I worked my, my undergraduate, sorry, my graduate advisor, my MA advisor was the Japanese archaeologist Izumi Shimada. Ah, uh, that's where he fits yes. into the picture. Okay, yes. I didn't, I wasn't aware, I didn't actually look up who your mentor was there. Got yes. it. So that was, that was Dr. Shimada. And um, it's well regarded as really being one of the best field archaeologists anywhere in the world. He's not still at Southern Illinois State. He is retired and off okay. in Arizona, but okay. um, uh, he, I think that's he, why I didn't connect. He is also an unstoppable force of nature and he will continue work. <laughs> yeah, for sure. uh, and now it's just unencumbered by committee work and yeah. you know, teaching, but um, I actually hope to see him in the field this summer, but um, uh, still very tough on me, but treats my, my graduate students like a, uh, like a, like a grandfather treats oh. the, the grandkids just loves them to death, but still, still uh, gives me some, some trouble. So <laughs> <laughs> Um, but I, I love him dearly and I'm very, very, very deeply loyal to him too. Uh, uh, but anyway, so uh, where were we going? Uh, first field <laughs> season in Peru. Yes, it's the same it, yeah. area you still work so, in. So yeah, so working with, with Shimada as part of the Sakan Archaeological Project. Um, and Do you want to give people like geographically where in Peru yes, that is? Because Peru you. is yes, a yes. very geographically diverse country. Culturally diverse, yes. historically diverse, archaeologically sure. diverse. Yeah, so the north coast of Peru um, is about 700 kilometers north of Lima. Okay. And, Which is the capital in case yep. anyone doesn't know. So that's sort of like right there in the center of the coast. Excuse me. And um, <clears throat> And so the um, desert, uh, the coast of Peru is essentially the last 12 to 14,000 years, it's been a steady state desert um, because at that point, 12 to 14,000 years ago, uh, an, an Antarctic uh, current started to migrate towards uh, the coast of, of uh, Peru. And um, it's created a temperature inversion. It's been very, very mm. uh, stable. So you got a really hot landmass and you got a really cold body of water that is very important actually for civilizations we'll talk about, uh, I hope. But um, get me talking about Peruvian, you know, um, uh, ecology and environment yes. you know, here for hours. But um, but yeah, the uh, the issue there is that the temperature inversions create the steady state desert. Mm -hmm. So the whole sort of coast of all of Peru uh, is this very arid um, uh, uh, desert, but where, um, you know, for 14,000 years, humans have figured out ways, creative ways, mm -hmm fascinating ways, unexpected ways, mm -hmm. how to thrive, yeah. uh, not just to survive, but how to thrive. So um, way up on the North coast, even we might even call it the Northern North coast of Peru. Um, there is, I mean, there's river valleys that, um, that uh, punctuate this, this desert um, sort of almost, you know, East to West kind of thing. Um, highland rivers that, that then drain through the coast and you know, drain into the ocean. Uh, but um, there's one of the biggest, actually the largest of all of the uh, coastal river valleys happens to be this place called Lambayeque. And it's a confluence actually of five different river valley systems. And um, it became really one of the core regions of, of distinct and unique uh, uh, cultural development in Peru. So, I mean, the Inca, right? We all know about the Inca. Mm -hmm. uh, that's the Southern Central Highlands. Mm -hmm. Uh, but another sort of reactor of, of cultural diversity and creativity and technology and art and so forth, that's the North Coast. And within the North Coast, the Lambayeque region was one of its epicenters. Um, and so, um, so that's where we were working in Lambayeque as the, the Sikan archaeological project, studying the Sikan culture, uh, which thrived from about 900 uh, uh, CE to about uh, you know, 1150. Um, for the middle phase, and then uh, 1375 was really the end 
of, of, of the Sikhan, but uh, at least archaeologically speaking. But, uh, but yeah, and the, what I realized is that there's this incredible human history uh, in this Lumbaki region. And at that point, um, nobody was doing really any bioarchaeological research upon those those peoples. And in the early two thousands, yeah. Okay. And um, realizing that that you know Lumbek is this is a terrible metaphor. I don't know how to phrase it otherwise, but you know Lumbek is almost like it's like a natural laboratory mm. to ask questions yeah. about the origins, the development, and the fates of human societies. Yeah. And. Um, well, that, the, that's desert, what, the desert preserves. And you have things. great preservation yeah. too, yeah. Um, and so, um, you, know, re, re, you know, being interested in those big pictures uh, about human existence and about, especially as an anthropologist, I'm, I'm deeply interested in the near-term and even the long-term human future. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I want to I get that deep time perspective. I want to get at that. Yes. I want to understand that. Not just to understand the people themselves who are intrinsically important and you know, represent a chapter of human history that I don't think has really any equal. Um, it is is very unique in Lambayeque. Um, but uh, to be able to to also maybe in some ways help ourselves yeah. through a greater and deeper knowledge of the past, maybe that's very op- opportunistic and naive. But um, I don't know. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe not. <laughs> no, I think that's really interesting, yeah. and I'm glad that we got to touch on you know your first experience in Peru um you know the project has obviously transformed a lot over the years I'm sure um the Secon project Mm -hmm. where do you see it going in the future like you're going there this summer what are how is there's no kind of like graceful way to say that like (laughs) how have the research questions changed Well, the Sakan project is Dr. Shabanas. Oh, okay. Right. So that, that's, yeah. So in 2002, when I went back, because I couldn't stay away, yeah. <laughs> you know, um, I found my own project. And uh, it was partly based on the philosophy and uh, the ideas of the Sakan project. So I drew things from Dr. Shimada. And before I really knew Dr. Larson, Dr. Clark Larson, mm-hmm. before I studied under Who him. we'll get to. Yes, yes, indeed. <laughs> um, you know, I, the, the idea of like what he did with the La Florida bioarchaeological project or biohistory project, excuse me, um, in, you know, the Georgia Bight in the, in the eighties and the nineties and still, you know, still in some ways the work continues today. Um, yeah. I, so I drew the idea of biohistory, but kind of put them together. So I founded my own project in 2002, which is the Lumbayeque Valley Biohistory Project. And so over the years, um, it's, I mean, I, I think, you know, from the beginning, I had a pretty good idea of what I wanted to, to do. Mm-hmm. And I initially planned for a 20 year project. And the idea there was to try to characterize the bioarchaeological dimensions of the human experience and of mm-hmm. history in this region um, for like the last, uh, you know, thousand years or so of prehistory. Yeah. Let me interrupt you really quickly. For mm-hmm. someone who maybe isn't super well versed in bioarchaeology, what are some of the methods that you're talking about for uh, investigating these questions? Right. So when we examine human skeletal remains, uh, some of the things that we, we look at, for instance, um, evidence of infectious disease, um, evidence of physical activity, evidence of diet, um, especially important for bioarchaeologists like me, evidence of biological stress. So in essence, any time that, um, uh, that the, you know, the human body is disrupted mm-hmm. by some outside stressor, 
And usually those are cultural things that we create for ourselves. Um, but anytime that the body is, is um, uh, interrupted by a stressor, it can leave various sorts of signatures in skeletal and dental tissue. And so along those lines, um, there are you know very important form of information called a linear enamel hypoplasia, uh, which when they occur across multiple teeth, um, uh, you know, are, are sort of a record of, of uh, metabolic disruption. Yeah. Um, serious, serious metabolic disruption. Um, other forms of, um, uh, you know, biological stress can include, that you can see in the skeleton, uh, can include um, uh, forms, various forms of anemia uh, that um, are represented by areas of, of abnormal bone expansion, usually in the crania or in the roof of the eye orbit. Um, uh, stature, another very sensitive indication of, um, of biological stress, whether, you know, there's growth disruption, for instance. And um, yeah, I think one of the, the neat things about bioarchaeology is that, you know, we're increasingly um, better at, and I think more aware of, how these different sort of social and economic and environmental um, uh, things affect the human skeleton. And we're getting better and better at being able to read them. Yes. Right. So in essence, you know, what we see in these various forms of evidence that we examine, and these are only just sort of at the surface of, of yeah. this, but um, uh, but the idea is that we are getting better at reading them. We're getting better at understanding how lived experiences mm -hmm. can be embodied and translated into biological forms. Yes. Um, and, uh, you know, for instance, the work this summer, Mm -hmm. uh, that we'll talk about it later, but that's coming up, um, you know, takes that in a very interesting new direction uh, involving um, um, immunology. But okay. yeah. So. Thank you for outlining the method. Before that, you were telling me about uh, the research mm -hmm. questions that have guided your 20 year long project. Yes. Yeah. So in terms of the research questions, uh, you know, when I started, I think I had a pretty good you know, basic idea of, of trying to be able to characterize uh, patterns of disease and biological stress and genetic relatedness, uh, diet, mm -hmm. physical activity, uh, and, and so forth. Um, and still, that's part of the mission today, right? That's still part of the, the, the guiding principles and questions that we want to ask. But as time has gone on, um, it has also expanded to um, things that I wasn't exactly anticipating in the beginning, uh, one of which is that in 2003, I began what has now turned into a long uh, sort of side uh, <laughs> investigation of human sacrifice and ritual mm. killing yes. in Lambayeque. And a Peruvian colleague um, had discovered atop of a small mountain in Lambayeque that was, they were going to put a cell phone tower actually on top oh. of this thing. And um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So emergency rescue excavation yeah. was, was conducted when, uh, you know, this small little temple and some human remains were found on top. And it turns out that these were um, very violently um, uh, sacrificed children and adults. Uh, from the middle Sakan period, we mm -hmm. think, and um, that began then this this um, you know area of, of you know deep interest and curiosity because mm -hmm. uh, it's also kind of hard to understand some of this stuff, right? Yeah. You know, how do you do this to a kid, and what does it mean? Why are they doing it? Yeah. Um, and to understand yeah. how the sacrifice happened, you don't just mm. need an archaeologist. You need a bioarchaeologist who understands the human skeletal system in an yes. in-depth way, because something that listeners may not realize is that, you know, we're talking about thousands of years ago. And so there's a lot of post-mortem after-death changes yes. that happen, bugs, roots, 
wetness that can, you know, create things we call like pseudopathologies or pseudo trauma Mm -hmm. that make it look like, oh, this is something and it's it's not so you need someone yeah yeah you need someone (laughs) trained to be able to say Mm -hmm. here is actually like how the set or our best estimation of how this sacrifice was actually carried out yeah yeah and in general though um i absolutely agree with you and so that's one of the reasons why i think it's absolutely important philosophically and practically uh, that uh, archaeologists and bioarchaeologists always have to be working together in the field Mm -hmm. because especially if a bioarchaeologist is trained in anatomy um, there are things that we can see that uh, uh, an archaeologist you know standard archaeologist would 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 not Um, good case in point um, a dear colleague uh, don't remain nameless (laughs) but a dear colleague uh, and I a couple about 10 years ago excavating a, a, a funerary context and uh, uh, said, hey, look at those parrot bones uh, by the, 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 the sort of the, the pelvis of this one individual. And I said, the, <clears throat> those aren't parrot bones. Um, I think by the length of the femur, that is a, uh, a probably a late second trimester um, uh, human fetus. Yeah. And oops, <laughs> was sort of the reaction by the archaeologist. But, yeah. uh, but it goes even deeper than that. You know, there can be a lot of subtle things about body positioning yes. and bone positioning. Mm-hmm. Uh, that again, you know, our training in anatomy, which typically will happen in the PhD sort of um, time frame uh, for most of us, I think, but um, that really becomes super important. Um, and, you know, it, it enriches the amount of information that we can, we can observe and learn and, and, and reconstruct um, ancient lives. But yeah. Yeah. Well, that's really interesting. And we'll go back to Peru, everyone, Mm -hmm. don't worry, but I do want to touch on the P your PhD experience Mm -hmm. and kind of like the key takeaways from that. But before we get Mm -hmm. into the like heavier, what I learned in my PhD, um, I asked Temple this, so you're gonna get the same question. What are your first memories of meeting Dr. Temple? Oh my goodness. Is, is he going to hear this? Is he going to listen to this? I, well, I did you know, listen maybe. to his episode? I haven't had a chance okay. yet. Then so. probably he won't listen to yours. So. <laughs> it's not personal. They're busy. Yeah, we're, we're all busy. We're it's, very it's busy. Not, it's yes. not, I don't take any of it to heart. Yeah, Dr. Temple and I can get along very well. Yes. Um, yeah, so 20, 20 years ago. Wow. Uh, I showed up at the uh, graduate student um, like TA orientation at Ohio State. And um, this is before the semester began, mm-hmm. my first semester as a PhD student and um, uh, kind of, you know, met a couple of the other, yeah. you know, anthro people and, oh, nice to see you. And I said, you know, oh, Dan Temple's here. And Dan Temple, who's this, this person's reputation apparently precedes them. Oh. <laughs> uh, and um, I said, oh, you know, he's working, you know, to do stuff in Japan, he's working, you know, uh, you know, Smithsonian with Don Ortner and all that. And um and uh, I remember seeing this guy sort of, sort of by himself on top of like a, like a grassy area, and uh, had these aviator sunglasses on, and he was sporting like this this badass faux hawk, right? And and he was looking very serious, very serious guy. And um, that's my first memory of Dan Temple. Then we went to a party I think that that evening, and got to know him a little bit better, and. Um, uh, we've been inseparable uh, work friends and, and colleagues kind of ever since. I don't think the image of Temple with a with a 
mohawk will ever leave no, my faux hawk, brain. A no hawk. i know but it's a hawk, yeah. still it's it, just, it, i gotta tell you i can like envision it, it was sharp he pulled it off well <laughs> i'm sure he did i'm sure he, he really did. did former yeah. former punk punk guy oh absolutely um yes. still yeah. in his heart um and you know then you developed you know a relationship with clark larson sorry clark spencer larson yes. who uh was was your advisor and is still you know a friend today you mm -hmm. go to the ohio state football game with him every year <laughs> yes, i do. know um yeah, tradition so what do you what did you take from your time with him Big or small? oh my gosh um what don't i take from my time with him right yeah clark um i mean i've been very fortunate to have really good mentors um um I don't know, feel weird about that sometimes because I know not everybody has good mentors. For sure. Um, but uh, but yeah, Clark, um, for one thing, he really taught me to be very confident in myself mm. because um, his style, at least with me, right, was hands off, laissez faire, and he let me do what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm sure that like if I had like some terrible, fatal, screwed up flaw in my research design or something, he would let yeah, me. He'd let me know in no uncertain terms. Yes. Um, but um, Temple recounted a story of him doing just that. Yeah. So, um, but yeah. So the issue there, I guess, you know, he, he, I mean, taught me to be very, you know, self confident, very reliant on myself. You know, I think I've always long been sort of a self starter. Mm -hmm. um, but but you know, Clark kind of really cemented that. I think um he really taught me like azumi shimada taught me how to write um and you know pretty well and sort of but also to write in a very archaeological kind of way mm -hmm. and how to think about writing and then clark took that to the next level with me mm. and um you know he was just very very insightful editor and was very um influential for instance i remember <laughs> where is it it's over here right here by my uh right on the other side of my desk the elements of style, he said, you, you have to get this and read it and incorporate this into your what? writing. That's the Strunk and White um, style manual that is sort of considered to be standard, uh, the gold standard still for sort of formal writing in, in English. So, um, but, um, excuse me, but I, I really also think that, you know, with, with Clark, um, you know, he really um, was very influential in doing like that final push of my brain into the literature of, of bioarchaeology. Um, so at Southern Illinois, you know, there's a wonderful bioanthropologist there, mm -hmm. but um, not a bioarchaeologist like Clark was. And that's what mm -hmm. I needed. Right. Yeah. And because um, also yeah. listeners keep in mind, you know, bioarchaeology is on the newer side yeah. of archaeological developments you know so About 45 years old yeah, yeah so especially at, at that point there weren't a ton of experts like you were you know yeah getting and trained was, to be that next generation yeah, there's a lot of variation also in, yeah. in training mm -hmm. uh, that existed still exists someday some degree but yeah 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 awesome well um so i know that oh, uh, can i also say oh of course yeah. yes um and um i think also from clark i learned things about how to be a, a good advisor learned also i pull things also from shimada as well mm -hmm. uh with um with how you know to, to be a good advisor to, to students um so i have to add that as well yes so, of course yeah. yeah um you're always welcome to interrupt me and add something um, <laughs> i can't do that to the host no <laughs> yes 
So I know that George Mason was not your first teaching position, yeah. um, but I do kind of want to focus our time and energy there since you have been here for a while. 10 years um, now. Yeah, you started in 2013. Yep. Um, and as you're saying, you're now, you know, uh, basically a full professor. It's just a technicality. I and I sit right next to a 2022 Teaching Excellence Award presented to you. Yeah. So um, what is your favorite class to teach and why? Oh my goodness. Um, it could be classes if you want. I mean, that's also like trying to say, okay, which of your children do you like the most? You don't uh, have children though. I don't. Well, uh, you have fur children. <laughs> yes, two dogs. But um, but no, I mean, it's the same thing. I mean, I love all my classes for different different reasons. Um, so for instance, when I teach the, um, um, the human osteology, so it's basically a skeletal anatomy course. Mm -hmm. Um, and also the paleopathology class for both of them. Yeah. Uh, I really like to be able to communicate um, like the just insane rigor yeah. that um, kind of goes into that yeah. and to see sort of that rigor being then adopted by students is very satisfying. Mm -hmm. um, like now when we're doing, so I'm in his uh, paleopath class um, and right now we're doing uh, lesions, like descriptions and differential diagnosis of um, for people that don't know, paleopathology is the study of ancient skeletal diseases or diseases that affect the skeletal system. Mm -hmm. um, and we're like actually in class sitting with bone clones, casts of bones. Actually, he's like standing over watching us do osteological analysis. And pushing you hopefully towards the right. Uh, Except for darn right station area. two, I still don't know. <laughs> Can't tell you what it is. I know. <laughs> when, when you realize, if, if, if your differential diagnosis doesn't land in the mm -hmm. territory, um, yeah, you'll, you'll, and I'll tell you, okay. like, oh, you know, yeah. how could it be anything but, but yeah. So yeah, I definitely see a lot of like joy for you in that yeah, class. Like yeah. I feel like, and that's not to say that you're not joyful in our other classes, but I feel like specifically in paleopath, yeah, it's just such a, I haven't taken your human osteology and I'm not sorry. I've taken it enough times. Oh no. Um, <laughs> it's not personal. Okay. I mean, Amy trained me and I took osteo did, with did, Amy. Did so. Amy use the nomina anatomica with you? I don't know what that is, but also get, I did. I also did learn on real bones, yes, so there, there's that. Advantage. <laughs> um, yes. But sorry, Amy, if you're listening. No, I know you're an awesome teacher. So yes. yes. <laughs> um. Yes, but I really like see. Like, I feel like you walk into class and you're just like very happy. And yeah, I mean, you know, I think you probably got the sense, and the listeners probably got the sense also now that, you know, I love this stuff and it's mm -hmm. very important for, to me as a person um and and so forth but yeah to be an educator right to be able yeah. to share stuff that you really feel is important mm -hmm. and to be able to share that with other people and see it become important to them yeah. and meaningful to them that's that's something special um i wouldn't trade it for anything um not even like an hour in the back seat of an f-14 <laughs> uh, seriously i wouldn't um Good to know. plus they're all retired now so they could oh. um so it's not really an option <laughs> on some some imaginary one uh -huh. but um uh but i mean like when i teach intro right yeah intro uh, to biological intro to biological anthropology or intro to 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 archaeology oh, okay. um i do both uh, from time to time but uh for intro i love doing that those classes because uh, on one hand you know these students have never had this information presented to them before mm -hmm. because we don't teach anthropology very commonly in uh, high schools. Which is a darn shame and I'm yes, trying to is. fix it. Yes, it is. Yeah, please. Um, I'll help if you let me know how. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, so, so it, you know, the, the, so it's like opening windows to other aspects of existence and reality 
that um, that you know students might not have realized was mm -hmm. out there. So it's you know perception changing at least. Yeah. Um, and one thing that I absolutely love is is to see um, the like the light turn on. Yeah. Right. I saw it in yeah. that class. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it takes sometimes it takes a little while depending on the person right yeah uh but to, to be able to see that is is really i think very very important yeah. um but here's the bigger point right which is that in those intro classes um like 99 out of 100 students that are in those sections i'm probably never going to see again right they're psych majors they're engineering majors they're yeah. whatever majors and so um what i hope to do is at least leave them with some knowledge about what it is to be human yeah. and <clears throat> that there are many ways of being human mm -hmm. um and that and i'm not going to like get political or anything but um but i think one of our most important jobs is that if we want to create a more just and humane world in our future right this is a long multi-generational uh project mm -hmm. and you know if we want to make our society better it's going to take time right but um the i always go back to this but there's the german philosopher and um a theologian uh, martin buber who actually really influenced anthropological um, pedagogy too uh in the 20th century but uh buber would say that um never never doubt that or that's that's a margaret mead line sorry um <laughs> i think that the, the the direct quote is that um uh, that small change that, that that large changes monumental changes uh, start with they have very small beginnings yes they have very small very little inputs yeah and so you know if we want to make a better world and a more just and humane existence for a compassionate world for humans uh, for all humans right it starts with creating um, a um, ed an educated electorate yes definitely right? <clears throat> I agree so yeah yeah well I got to witness that firsthand in, in intro to bioanth as his TA and I, I definitely think that that's what, you know, that's what goes on. And um, it's interesting because now both two of my roommates have taught that class as well. So I've kind of seen it from their perspective as well. Yeah. You know, Meg has students that just worship the ground that she walks on, you know. It's great teacher. Um, yeah. And now, now Mariah, Mariah is teaching it virtually. So it's a little bit different, but it is, you know, kind of exciting. Like I've kind of, I've now seen, yeah. I've heard and just talked about like so many different ways to teach bioanth. Cause of course I took it and the person who taught it to me was God awful. Um, <laughs> I, I feel, yeah. I say that with my full chest. Right. <laughs> you can look up who that is at UCSB and I do not care. He should I, not be teaching that class. I won't, I won't. Don't worry. Um, okay. No, I'm telling the listeners because I feel like there are some it, listeners yeah. who are like, who is she talking shit about at UCSB? And I'm like, you can look that one up. I don't care <laughs> okay. um yeah but yeah so um now i have a question that i did not plan to ask at all mm -hmm. um but i think you'll like it so i've been staring at this beautiful painting oh the entire time this one on the right yeah and yeah. um i just would like to hear about it because you have a lot of really cool artwork in here but this i don't know it's very different like it I'm assuming it was made by an indigenous artist. Yes, it is. Yeah. yeah. It's just a, it's a very unique medium, the way it's shiny. I'll post mm -hmm. a picture for people if they want to see. Yeah, totally. Take a yeah. picture of it. Now, this is um, an artist who I've, I've known for a while, and I've got a couple of his pieces at home, too. Uh, but he's an indigenous Lambayacano, he's an indigenous Muchik mm -hmm. uh, artist. And um, one of the, the, the cultures that I study, and I still also realize that there's a 
bunch of incomplete answers to your questions about how my work has evolved. There's other we'll stuff there. too. We'll get there. Yeah. But this was part of the transition to get there. Yeah. Thank you. Very. Yeah. This is a segue. <laughs> segue. <laughs> right, yay. Um, but yeah, what you're seeing here is um, uh, it's oil on canvas. Okay. And oh, really? Wow. Yeah. Um, and yeah, he's got a gloss like um, um, varnish on it. I think. Oh, okay. But uh, it's it's all on canvas, and it's a depiction of a character from Moche mythology. Okay. And it's a modern interpretation of it, so it's not a you know, for instance, right here I'm, I'm holding in my hands, it's on my desk, you know, a very uh, accurate replica of a Moche ceramic. Because um, the Lambayeque, um, no, uh, followed the Moche in that region. That's right. Yeah. So yeah, it's the, the same Sikhan region. Comes, yeah. Okay. Yes, yeah, Khan comes after, or Lambayeque culture is another name for them. Yeah, they they come after the Moche. Um, and yeah, they had a lot of mocha descendants uh, mm -hmm. within the society itself. But um, but back to the painting, though, is that it's a picture of, of, of a mocha uh, deity or entity. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, uh, sort of there's a central depiction of a figure that um, has come to be known uh, as Ayapayek. Oh, that's who that is. Ayapayek, okay. the life giver, the death uh, bringer, um, the source of, of all life and, and death in the universe. It's a very central entity. I wouldn't, I, it's it's close to a God concept mm -hmm. uh, in uh, the Judeo-Christian sense. It's not quite, mm -hmm. um, but it's this very powerful personification of a lot of things. Mm -hmm. uh, but here in this picture is Ayapayek, uh, the radiant um, sort of sort of sun coming off of his back and so forth, uh, carrying this, this form, this object. It looks like an eel. It is the arc of the Milky Way galaxy. Wow, that's what as I explained guessed. to me by by the artist. Totally thought it was a fish. It's it's well, <laughs> it's, it's personified in a lot of different ways, right? And it also has, for instance, you see the um, the like the curl sort of icon. Yeah. That is a wave icon. That's a, oh, okay. that's a secondary icon you see in a lot of mocha art. It means water or ocean, mm. uh, but. Um, and a lot of mochi art, both ceramic and, and sculptural and um, even metalwork, the depiction of the so-called celestial arc is, mm -hmm. is sometimes present. And um, that's what this modern interpretation kind of uh, depicts. Very cool. And um, yeah, I've got a, a number of those pieces. They're, they're really beautiful. Yeah, it's Modern it's interpretations of, yeah. of, ancient, of ancient art and ancient ideas. Yeah, I'm sure the listeners are going to love to see it. It's, it's yeah. very pretty. And it's something that in all the time I've spent in your office, I haven't really like taken a notice to until now. <laughs> yeah. Your current research in Peru. Yeah. So, I mean, to kind of go back to how things evolved, right? Yeah. Um, so when that sacrifice sample, the site of Cerro Cerrillos, the mountaintop of the sacrificed children and adults was found, um, is it right at the beginning of my PhD. Actually, before I had started the program, um, I was in Peru like a month before uh, uh, I, I moved to Ohio State and did the work on these skeletons. And um, I said, oh, awesome. You know, I'm just going to do more in-depth work. And here's my PhD thesis. So the following year in 2000, 2000, no, excuse me, 2002, same year. Um, I remember I was giving a talk at one of the local universities uh, about uh, bioarchaeology and so forth. And some of the work that I'd done in 2002. And um, a proven gentleman comes up to me and says, well, you know, uh, would you be interested in taking a look at some skeletons in the town of Morope? Mm. And of course I knew what Morope was and where it was and why it was important. Uh, one Shimada had um, done ethnoarchaeology in the 80s mm -hmm. uh, with the potters of Morope, who continued um, 1,000, 1,500-year-old ceramic technology uh, traditions. I feel like that's revolutionary for the 80s anthropology yes, it was. at that yeah, time. It really yeah. was, yeah. yeah. Shimada did a lot of archaeometrics and mm -hmm. still does. 
and a lot of experimental archaeology um, and you know really cutting edge stuff still I think yeah. but um, and of course there was the um, uh, there was a like a like a 1987 or 88 uh, issue of National Geographic and it was about Peru and the discovery of Sipan and so forth mm -hmm. which is in Lombok I've also worked out Sipan extensively um, but um, literally the centerfold of the of the that issue of, of National Geographic, it was a um, two-page spread of the inside of this very unusual church, mm. and it was an abandoned chapel. Um, but you know, and, and it had these posts and these sort of sinewy kind of um, uh, beams that held up the roof, um, and they're all covered in this you know very caked you know thick white plaster. Mm. And um, I remember the, the caption said, you know, looking like the bones of some prehistoric beast, <laughs> right? Um, you know, a woman in Morope, and there she's got some flowers and an yeah. old, old woman, um, you know, attends to cleaning uh, the ruins of the church. And so, yeah, I knew this, this chapel. Um, and he said, yeah, we're doing, you know, after the 1998 El Nino is severely mm -hmm. damaged. So we're doing this complete restoration, archaeological investigation as part of it. Um, uh, some skeletons are, are exposed. Would you like to? take a look and you know you, you had me at Morope you know? yeah, yeah. so um so a couple of days later I, I you know went up the Pan American Highway and it's in the far far edge of uh, northwestern Lombayake right on the edge of the Sechura Desert and so um uh, that was the start then of you know writing a bunch of grants um mm -hmm. I got my Warner Gren um a, a doctoral grant and um, returned in 2005 and continued working initially in 2006 with the excavation of the colonial uh, ruined cemetery that was there, mm -hmm. this ruined colonial church being so uh, restored. approximately yeah. what time period are we talking about? Uh, 15, June 1536 okay. uh, to somewhere around 1755 when it was a fully abandoned. Because records tell you yes. that? Okay. Yes. And um, so at that point, you know, this was the very first um, uh, archaeological and bioarchaeological study uh, work that Jeff Quilter was doing, uh, retired mm. colleague at Harvard. Um, a lot of his yes, um, was sort of happening in parallel, but we weren't talking to each other. Mm. We didn't at that moment, you know, yeah. um, just because we weren't in contact. Um, and so we were doing very parallel sort of things. And this, this is the beginning of, of sort of the historic archaeology of Lambayeque mm. and the first real, like, large scale bioarchaeological study of what actually happened to the local people, to their culture. Um, to their biology, to their genetics, to their relationships with their ecologies, and, and so forth. Um, what actually happened when to all that when the Spanish showed up mm. and permanently colonized, uh, you know, sort of this form of settler colonialism uh, in, in in the Andes. Um, and so, yeah, that was a major you know, this this focus on the, what we might call post contact or uh, or, or historic or colonial uh, bioarchaeology. That's been um, now, you know, a driving theme, uh, because as we've, you know, gone on and excavated other sites now, it is remarkably diverse mm -hmm. what happens in this one little valley. Yeah. Um, so, um, so yeah, the idea of, you know, studying um, the effects, the human effects, the human costs of, of colonialism, that's been a, a huge uh, part that continues to guide a lot of the work today. And Mariah worked with you with that. 
yes. church, right? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Mariah Sellers, my roommate, who's going to come <laughs> on the podcast once she's done her thesis stuff. Be an awesome guest. Yes, yes. she will. But I was like, yes. don't worry, we won't touch. I mean, we won't even talk about a date till you're done. <laughs> yeah. And then, but I got to do it before I move out. So it's going to happen. It's going to happen in June, early Good. June. Good. Stay tuned. Stay tuned. Yes. And on that note, um, you bring a lot of students with you to Peru when grants mm. are allowing and travel conditions are allowing. So you're going this summer with three students Mm -hmm. um what what are the goals um and i'm sure Sure. you're excited (laughs) oh my goodness anytime you get to go to Peru, it's it's wonderful uh but um i mean people down there are like my family so um and i miss them a great deal yeah and you didn't get to go to the pandemic so it's this is only your second season back in a while right uh yeah last year was sort of a a two-week field season and that was basically for Mariah. I didn't really do any of my own work, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. but I was, I, was, I was there to be, you know, facilitate, you know, access to, to skeletal collections and yeah. essentially open doors for her. Mm-hmm. So I was, you know, secretary and I filled out bag tags and stuff, but yeah. it was real low key for me. Uh, <laughs> I'm on vacation. Um, but no, I wasn't, um, it's a joke, but, um, yeah, the, um, the work this year, and we'll be joined also by two Peruvian students. Oh, cool. Um, so we, we try to bring in um, uh, local Peruvian students. And um, yeah, what I mean, it's- Master's students, undergrad? Uh, master's, okay. yeah. Uh, licenciatura is sort of like the professional licensing equivalent of a master's, but in Peru. Um, so yeah, advanced students, but but also if there's a really good undergrad, um, of course I'll take it. Yeah, of course, yeah, for sure. <laughs> let's, work, let's work together. Um, but um, but yeah, there's a long history of, of, of bioarchaeology not really catching on in Peru, mm-hmm. and that's another discussion uh, as well. But um, yeah, so this year we will go down and um, actually revisit a number of skeletal collections that uh, we've worked with in the past, and um, the inspiration for this sort of new look at um, uh, you know previous work uh, has been. A collaboration that I've been working on for almost 10 years now with an Argentinian osteoimmunologist mm-hmm. named Dr. Fabian Crespo at the University of Louisville uh, in Kentucky. And, um, you know, um, the field of osteoimmunology, it, it started really, its initial spark, right, was sort of in the 1970s of the series of, you know, in, 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 in vitro experiments. Mm-hmm. But then uh, around the year 2000, it really took off. Um, and you know, the technology and understanding and knowledge really allowed it then to really bloom. And the basic premise of osteoimmunology is that uh, the skeletal system and the immune system are fundamentally connected with one mm-hmm. another. And I mean, it goes, I mean, even from a developmental point of view, right? You take the same stem cell yeah. <laughs> and stimulate it with a certain set of uh, signals and molecular uh, messages, and it becomes an immune cell, like mm-hmm. a macrophage. Take the same stem cell, stimulate it with a couple of other different, um, uh, you know, signal mechanisms, and it becomes a bone cell, mm-hmm. right? In particular, like an osteoclast. Yeah. Um, so, um, but it, it goes much deeper than that, of course, which is that um, the field of osteoimmunology has shown that the skeletal system and the uh, immune system, they use each other uh, and they talk to each other a lot. And so we understand that they're using each other and they assist one another with completely different tasks. It manifests in the way that uh, processes of inflammation Mm. uh, affect um, uh, bone. So there's a lot of different skeletal diseases. Mm -hmm. Some remove bone, some take away bone, some do both. Mm -hmm. Uh, But when a disease involves sort of chronic inflammation, 
uh, you can see removal of bone mm. primarily. And then maybe around the margins of you know, the, the diseased area, um, you'll see new bone being uh, formed also in response to inflammation. But, um, and so for instance, a disease like that, that fits that perfectly is periodontal disease. Mm. One of the most common disease conditions uh, around the world today and in the past. Mm -hmm. And of course, we also now know that um, from clinical research that, um, that uh, uh, periodontal disease is deeply located or deeply situated um, and related to other disease conditions um, such as predisposing you to heart disease. Interesting. Yeah. Gut health. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, and so, um, in fact, there, there are some bioarchaeologists that propose uh, using periodontitis as like a very broad measure of immune competence and, and hmm. population health. Yeah, it's so linked to, to our health. So we think that, that there's this relationship between, um, uh, between inflammation and, um, and uh, uh, sort of the way that bone responds to um, uh, diseases. And um, this relationship is probably set very early in life. This, this is where Dr. Temple's part of the project comes in. Um, and so we think that, you know, for instance, the, the skeleton, try, the whole body, our whole biology tries to, as it's developing, both in fetal life and early um, uh, life after birth, uh, really trying to um, predict the environment that's going to be in so it can optimize its functioning. Mm -hmm. If it's in a uh, comfortable environment with not a lot of threat, right, um, that's one pathway. But if it's in an environment with a lot of things trying to disrupt that human body or maybe even kill it, um, if I can use a Star Trek uh, <laughs> metaphor here, um, the developmental pathways kind of go into a permanent state of red alert, right? They're always on guard. They're always ready. And so this is where the immune system, you know, comes your foe, yeah. right? It's friend or foe sometimes, but here's, it becomes um, something that can actually do harm uh, overreaction uh, to, um, uh, to diseases and to, um, and uses the inflammatory response, which is something that tries to, so the first stage isn't getting better actually, right? Mm -hmm. And trying to fight an infection, uh, but the inflammatory response becomes, um, uh, it damages the host, it damages our bodies. Anyway, so um, we'll be looking at um, inflammatory diseases, periodontitis, and then there's a, a type of disease condition that we see frequently around the world, in fact, um, called periostosis, which is type of inflammation that manifests on the, um, the tibia, so the mm. part of the lower limb um, between your knee and your foot. Um, and um, we're going to be looking, we think that they're actually related to one another. Mm. And we think that um, those people that have that, those two diseases, they're probably also going to show evidence of that early life stress in their mm, teeth okay. and in their bones. Um, and so it's, it sort of sets this, this pathway, like your whole adult, um, and I'm sure Dr. Temple talked about this in his podcast, but yeah, the, the whole range of possibilities. You know, biology is never destiny. Theodosius Dobzhansky said this, right? Founder, mm -hmm. One of the founders of the modern synthesis in biology. He said, it's never destiny, uh, but it can get kind of close sometimes. You know, the, the range of options uh, may be narrowed through early life experiences, mm -hmm. um, whether it's, you know, normal developmental pathway or something that um, uh, may actually cut your life short. Yeah. And so we'll be looking at those relationships also between morbidity and mortality. And then the neat thing is, the really neat thing, <laughs> um, is that I think like the linchpin to this project is that we will be also taking samples of very small samples. So destructive analysis is 
not easy to do ethically, mm -hmm. but sometimes if you can take a small sample, sacrifice that sample of human tissue uh, for study, um, okay, you know? Yeah. Um, uh, but in this case, it's, uh, you know, sort of, sort of a couple micrograms of, uh, of bone tissue from these affected areas, and we'll take a piece of a small piece of a rib as a control. But what we'll be looking at with our colleagues from the University of York in the UK um, is the presence of um, a set of four key inflammatory proteins, mm. um, whether they're present or absent, or it's proteomics, right? The study mm. of ancient proteins or proteins in general, archaeoproteomics, that's ancient proteins. Um, we're still trying to figure out, this is a very new field. And so we're still trying to figure out, you know, what represents, let's say, elevated, you know, mm. uh, proportions of a protein because there's a lot of inflammation. Yeah. Chronic, yeah. But um, so we're at least going to be starting this process and trying to yeah. explore where this goes and where this takes us. And then um, another really fascinating thing, this is the one I'm really super excited about. I mean, I'm excited for the whole thing. But, yeah. Um, but um, we'll also ex uh, extract all the proteins that are recovered in that uh, particular individual and in that particular uh, bone sample. And the idea there is that there's um, new bioinformatics software, relatively new, um, uh, called uh, Reactome. And those data will be submitted to Reactome. And the Reactome software, with degree of statistical significance, mm -hmm. um, is able to reconstruct probable um, uh, entire proteome structures, like the entire, for instance, um, um, metabolic pathway of this person mm -hmm. at or around the time of their death. Interesting. Yeah. And so we'll be looking for things such as uh, immune uh, reaction, immune induction, sort of things like that. But um, yes, and this is, you know, that's all these different lines of evidence really have to come together to make this sort of premise work. Mm -hmm. But, you know, to me, it's, it's sort of exploring, um, still yet unknown, um, but exploring, you know, some of these deeper mysteries of human biology and fundamental things about health and disease that, you know, affected people in the past, but affects us practically the same because in terms of evolution these are mechanisms that are common to all vertebrates mm -hmm. we're pretty sure for sure so um um so with, with an eye towards maybe one day someone is able to use this in an applied fashion yeah and, and exciting help people stuff. yeah exciting stuff so, yeah okay so in relation to peru what are your favorite non-academic things to do while you were there well um i have to say that when i'm in, i'm in peru um, almost all of my energy, thoughts, um, activity, um, everything is, is directed towards the work. Yeah. Right. I'm very, very focused when I'm in Peru. Um, however, um, there are, um, yeah, plenty of things also that like, on, okay, on Sundays when everybody has off, right? Yeah. <laughs> I'm not driving it like, for instance, on Saturdays, you know, usually we'll do a field trip throughout Lambayeque mm. and I'll take students, you know, pile them in the pickup truck and, take them on back roads to, you know, this site or that yeah. site. And um, uh, I was like, oh, I've read about this. And now, well, here you are. <laughs> yeah. Um, let's go climb a pyramid. But like walkers. And stuff. Yes, okay. exactly. Yeah. Um, but I would say that probably my favorite non-academic thing is to eat. Uh, Peruvian food is, if for those of you who might not have had Peruvian food before, um, I openly invite you to try some. <laughs> uh, a lot of Peruvian food. Uh, joints here in the United States now, but um, yeah, the, the sort of the culinary traditions of, of modern Peru um, 
are recognized actually pretty well as one of the unsung gems of human culinary traditions. Yeah, I know nothing about it. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so I mean, modern Peruvian food is this remarkable syncretism between, let's say, Latin American food, mm -hmm. indigenous foodways, uh, and because of patterns of immigration in the 19th century, mm. Chinese and Japanese foodways. Oh, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And um, it's it's exquisite. It's um, I mean, it used to be, you know, go to Peru and visit Machu Picchu. And that was the, the draw for the tourists. Mm -hmm. Right. Now it's go to Peru and eat. Mm. <laughs> you know? So what's your favorite yeah. dish or dishes? Uh, lots of favorite dishes. And, um, um, you know, there's a traditional dish uh, called ají de gallina, which is really delicious. It's that type of pulled chicken. And I was like about to say, it has sauce. to be something yeah. with chicken. Yeah. Uh, there's... Um, um, there's um let me think here this is post-covid brain fog edit this part out um their dishes i know the quinoa names of, potatoes we don't really do have quinoa or potatoes on, on the coast oh on the coast um, yeah i guess that makes yeah. sense but um so okay so for instance another uh dish that's really really good um is lomo saltado um which is like a stir fry mm. um and um Let's see. Well, yeah. And so, I mean, one of the things that I do in my project, I mean, I keep on rattling off dishes. Um, one thing that I do in my project is that I learned from Shimada mm -hmm. as a master's student, that one of the keys to having a successful field season uh, is to have a healthy and happy team. Yes. Oh, yes. One of the ways that you have a healthy and happy team together is that you feed them really well. Mm -hmm. And so I spend the money and I spend the effort and for the last um, I don't know, 15 years or so, I've um, hired a mother-daughter team, uh, mm. both uh, former uh, professional gourmet chefs. Oh, wow. And um, uh, yeah, uh, a dinner, like when we come home from the field or whatever, mm. right around five o'clock, that is one of the highlights of our days. Yeah. And yeah, the food is delicious. Um, it's nutritious. It's healthy. Um, it's you know, professionally prepared even. Um, and they're wonderful people. Also, mm -hmm. folks, I think of you know, family, family over the years. Uh, you grow very close to them. And um, though, however, there is a, a restaurant. I'll say it this way: as a New Yorker, yeah, as a New Yorker, they're still working on doing good pizza mm. in Peru. But they do a version of pizza, Peruvian pizza. It's okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'll eat it and I'll enjoy it. <laughs> but um, but I'll long for my Long Island pizzeria in my mm -hmm. youth sometimes when I'm in Peru. Um, but. No, I will say that um, that there's one restaurant actually, um, and yeah, Anthony Bourdain was in La, in the city of Chiclayo, which is the big city. Mm. This restaurant is, and uh, I, I don't know how, but his producers did not put him in this restaurant. Mm. But it's legendary. It's famous. It's a small kind of hole in the wall place. Mm -hmm. The best places uh, are yeah, and it's called Sorrento, and Sorrento it sounds Italian. Yeah, well, it's Argentinian. Ah, there we go. Yeah. <laughs> And it was an Argentinian expat who immigrated to Lambayeque uh, like in the 50s and the 60s. And, um, you know, he had that Argentinian style of, mm -hmm. of cooking beef. And um, uh, he, he passed it on to his son and now the, as the owner, right? Mm -hmm. And now he trained his son to be the next owner in line, right? And uh, what they do is it's, it's a specialty sort of, you know, beef place. And there's a bunch of things on the menu. It's like maybe 10 things, but you only get like three. You only need three, the signature yeah. dishes. Um, so one is the, uh, the Lomo Fino. And so it's this really, sorry for the for vegan and vegetarian friends and brethren, but I apologize. But mm. here um, it's this, this 
you know, really big piece of, of meat off of the, the cow and it's cooked to perfection, mm -hmm. um, sort of, you know, somewhere between rare and, and medium rare. Um, the flavors are incredible. And in fact, Shimada, Dr. Shimada, uh, one of his hobbies is cooking and he's, he's a really good chef. Mm. The guy can cook. Um, and Azumi, in fact, for decades, for like almost a decade, I think he tried to replicate the taste oh. to the point that he actually went and he got meat off of one of the same cows that was being <laughs> butchered that was going to the restaurant in the, in the evening, right? And he Committed. Still, yeah, and he still couldn't do it. Oh. And so we always joke, we always joke that there's probably a, um, you know, a mildly toxic um, dose of MSG uh, that's being added to the yeah. meat and that's what's missing, that lovely little taste, you know? <laughs> probably. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, and it's served with this, 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 uh, this green ahi sauce oh. that is really, yeah. really hot, really spicy. And the flavor that it adds to this already extraordinarily cooked um, uh, piece of meat is just so good. They also do um, the uh, like this meat stuffed empanada, mm -hmm. and so it's a like very finely diced uh, steak um, within this, this really delicious uh, pastry. Um, and then the other thing on the menu, if anybody goes there, um, get the salad. So in general, salads can be kind of iffy in Peru. Mm. Um, and typically I don't eat the salads, but mm. the way that they do the salads here um, is practiced and it is perfect and it is wonderful. And, and it's a simple salad, right? Mm -hmm. It's like iceberg lettuce with a, um, a sort of um, diced um, tomato, onion, avocado, mm. and then some oil and then mm -hmm. some, uh, some olive oil and some seasoning. Yeah. And Good. it's perfect. <laughs> Yummy. Nice. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so yeah, I love eating in Peru. Um, people always ask, you know, have you had, had what's the, the weirdest thing you've ever eaten? And yeah, I've, like in the highlands in Cusco, I've had uh, llama, so I've had, or llama for English speakers. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I've, I've had llama, which is very gamey. It reminds me a lot of venison, mm. not my favorite. Um, have but you had guinea pig? I have had cuy. I have eaten guinea pig. And I remember once eating in a restaurant, uh, some cuy in, in Cusco and, you know, four-star restaurant or whatever yeah. right it was the last day of a long trip so i treated myself you know it's <laughs> like let me get some some food here and um um i didn't like it it was just mm. you know, yucky but then later in back home in lambayeque right other home second yeah. home right but that's how i think of it <laughs> but uh but back home in lambayeque there was a little old lady she was uh, she's a campesina you know she's just out there in the field mm. you know, cooking food for some workers and she offered me some some kui and I was like, okay, you know, give it a try. Thank you. Yeah. And give her five soles or whatever. Yeah. And, and um, it was incredibly delicious. Mm -hmm. And then again, also apologies to um, um, uh, friends and, and loved ones who have um, guinea pigs as pets, but in Peru, they, they've domesticated them, but not as yeah. pets, food source yeah. uh, for thousands of years. Um, but this, this koi that she cooked um, had such incredible flavor and mm -hmm. the way that she used like different peppers and so forth. Um, it was um, very memorable. Yes. And I said, you know, por favor, una segunda. Yeah. Can I have another? Second, you know? yeah. <laughs> yeah. I have no way to gracefully transition to what we're going to talk about next. It hit me um, over the head. But thank you for recounting all your stories about Peru. Um, I'm sure you've inspired some people now to like go on a culinary tour of Peru. Do it. Um, <laughs> so I like in class, you've recounted many stories from your time at the Sundance Film Festival. 
However, I go on, I go on tangents. Yes. Tangents sometimes. However, you've never actually told me how in the heck you became involved with the Sundance oh, film festival. Okay. So we're going to start there and then we'll sure. go into the fun stories. Sure. So, um, so I moved to Utah as my first teaching gig out of, um, Ohio state in 2008 and I got lucky. I got a job. And I'm a New Yorker, right? So I was like, Utah, I was the, I was in Utah once for a conference and I didn't like it, you know? Um, and um, I remember I, I called Clark and I had to give the decision. There were other jobs that I was at least, you know, in the running for. Yeah. But I like that afternoon, I had to tell the dean mm. in Utah, at Utah Valley University, mm -hmm. um, which is a new university, still yeah. is. Um, uh, I had to tell her, otherwise I was going to lose the offer. Yeah. And um, I think the direct quote from Clark Larson was um, very sweet. But he said, you take the job, you idiot. You know, yeah, <laughs> you know? Yeah. like, thanks, boss. All right. Yeah. OK, we'll do. Yeah, I got I to call them now. All yeah. right. Yeah. But, I mean, I was, I was really did not want to go to Utah, uh, but it turned out it was a really good gig. And I had some really wonderful colleagues and really great students there, um, many of which I'm still in touch with. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, but anyway, so um, in Utah, of course, is very famous for a bunch of things, uh, including some great skiing mm -hmm. uh, and, of course, the world famous Sundance Film Festival, where, um, you know, a lot of um, you know, indie movies uh, will sort of see their first light. Mm -hmm. They get picked up by, you know, big studios. Um, sure. And every once in a while, there's a you know, world premiere of a, you know, a larger movie. But yeah. it's always been very focused. Robert Redford founded this, this thing oh, um, uh, many, many years ago. And. Uh, yeah, and it was really designed to like help um, emerging and independent filmmakers find notoriety, find well, find attention, I guess. I mean, notoriety, yeah, uh, is a word I'm looking for, but um, but it's not quite there. Uh, I can't think of it. But anyway, so um, so it happens in January of every year, and it's a pretty big event in terms of logistics and planning and management and so forth. Um, and so it really runs on on volunteers. Hmm. And some of the volunteers do get paid, so they're not technically volunteers, uh, but those are people in very high positions of responsibility. And there's, you know, stipends and stuff if you're yeah. a theater manager, for instance. Mm. Uh, but we have the Th Sundance Film Festival occurring on multiple different locations throughout uh, Park City, Utah. Mm -hmm. Uh, and but we've also got a couple screening locations, uh, for instance, in Salt Lake City. We've got a screening location uh, at the Sundance Resort, which is actually kind like of a ski resort. ski resort, which is you know, 45 minutes away. Uh, really great venue. Um, I've seen some films there. But um, but uh, in, in 2011, um, I started dating somebody. And um, somebody later turned out to be my wife. <laughs> yeah. I was like, in my head, I'm like, hmm. yeah, this is Jenny. Yeah. So um and uh, I remember, and so so Jenny had been doing this um, volunteer gig, uh, doing theater operations and management, uh, for uh, I don't know four or five years, mm -hmm. and she was telling me all about it. And, and then for the 2012 uh, Sundance, she said, you "Should do this with me, right? Mm -hmm. It'd be cool." Yeah. And um, I always enjoy new things, and I'll yeah. try at least you know something once. Um, and I said, "Well, okay, you know," and. Um, basically the job I was a, for six, seven years, um, I was uh, what's called a crowd liaison. And so um, I managed the outside of the Egyptian theater. Mm. And so the Egyptian theater um, on Main Street in Park City, it's the icon. So if you see mm -hmm. like a, like in, you know, a TV spot or, you know, some yeah. magazine thing or in the newspaper, who reads newspapers anymore? But you know what I mean? <laughs> so um, cool. Some people do, and that's good. Um, but you'll see, you know, Sundance Film Festival kicks off. It's always the picture of the of the Egyptian. 
Um, and um, uh, so, you know, the first year I got trained, I was really nervous because I had no idea what I was doing. Yeah. And there was like really serious rules and stuff that you had to pay attention to about how it operates. You know, mm-hmm. if that person has a red um, you know, credential around their neck, you know, um, you know, they go on that line, this line, people, the red credentials, they paid a lot of money for their credentials. Don't make them angry and put them in that line. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, and then, of course, I was you know terrified of like overfilling the uh, the theater, mm, yeah. um, terrified of sending people home when we didn't have any more seats in it. Um, but you know, for a screening. Yeah. Uh, but uh, but yeah, eventually, you know, that that was sort of my gig. And you know, Jenny did a bunch of things um, between crowd um, uh, liaison and you know um, you know assistant theater manager and, and you know team lead things like that. Uh, but I got to work with you know, on each shift. Um, I got to work with amazing people mm-hmm. from all walks of life. Um, and, you know, one, one, one uh, person, for instance, he's a director for A&E. Uh, and, but this, you know, Sundance is his thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, another person um, was just, you know, some, some guy who liked to do, you know, community service. Yeah. And, you know, we bonded over that, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, uh, another person um, was an aspiring actress. Mm. Uh, another person was a um, aspiring costume designer. Uh, this is Minnie Garcia. If you look at the Ooh. credits uh, for Everything, Everywhere, All at Once, oh. she was the assistant costume designer for that. Oh, that's very exciting uh, yeah. for her. And um, she won every award except the Academy Award for that, that her work oh. in that film um, with uh, the, the head costume designer. But now she's doing her own films now. That was, wow. yeah. Um, and yeah, she was, she was, she was the box office person <laughs> and I worked with her husband, yeah. Brian, um, just wonderful people. Um, some celebrities. And, yeah. But I mean, it was, but it was also, I gotta say, um, it was like customer service and I liked doing that too. Really? And it was so completely opposite of anthropology yeah. and teaching and being a scholar. So, yeah. um, and it was really fun. And of course, you know, I, I speak Spanish and so oh, they yeah. always had the other thing around my credentials is, you know, say, habla español, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, I can help you. you know? yeah. Um, not really use that much, but, um, but yeah, I got to, got to meet some, some interesting people. You said celebrities. There's a few of those yeah. over, over the years. You've recounted that Peter Dinklage and Donald Glover were two favorites. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Uh, Peter Dinklage, what an intense guy. Mm. I really didn't get a lot of time to spend with him. Uh, mainly helped him, you know, um, you know, find where the green room was. Mm. He produced that year. Uh, I think he co-produced a, um, an indie film. Um, and um, with all respect to Peter Dinklage, if he ever hears this, because I'm sure he's one of the listeners. Yeah. Uh, Dedicated. But yeah, he was running late. And oh. it was like all chaos and stuff. And it was like, okay, we gotta get you to the green room. Yeah. Um, um, Donald Glover was uh, somebody who I absolutely um, uh, had like probably the longest and most human conversation mm. with. Cause you can run into, you know, celebs who, um, you know, they're, they're apart, if you will, from the rest of us. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but yeah, Donald Glover was one of the nicest people and absolutely loved talking with him. That's great. And yeah, he was, he was there for a screening, but he came in late and just hung out in the lobby and we just talked and, you know, nice. Ben Stiller. Um, he seems like he'd be an intense guy. Yes. Yeah, we did the 20th anniversary of the Reality Bites uh, screening, mm. which was his big breakthrough and yeah. others too. Um, so he was there for like the Q&A. They did like as a DVD, you mm-hmm. know, extra or something that they shot. Uh, after the screening, um, I once nearly um, died. <laughs> to be quite honest, I nearly got killed once. Um, I was doing security for Lena Dunham uh, and a couple other um, uh, actresses, and 
uh, we, again, we had a you know, huge crowd and mm -hmm. my job was to get Lena Dunham and um, uh, a couple of folks that can't think of their names, but I get them to their, their, their waiting SUVs and mm -hmm. we used the secret back entrance, but it was not secret anymore. Ah, uh, yes. And um, Tony, the guy who's the A&E director, I mean, he's a, he's a big dude, mm -hmm. right? So it's me, him, and a couple other, um, you know, larger fellows on the team. And um, um, the crowd, I got her in, I got her into her SUV, but then the crowd started to, in Tony's words, go anaconda. <laughs> yeah. And it was like, this is exactly how people die from crush injuries um, mm -hmm. in, in like stampeding situations. Yeah. And yeah, my life for a moment flashed before my eyes. Yeah. I was like, sure. this is kind of scary. Uh, but then they peeled away and then the crowd the physical pressure of the wave of human bodies just started to let go. And I was like, Ooh, I'm going to live another day. Uh, <laughs> but um, let me think Holly Hunter. Very nice. Mm. Nice person. Um, I've met a bunch of different directors um, over the years. Um, i trying to think of famous movies that premiered at our theater, like Baba Duke was one. Oh, okay. That yeah. was cool. Um, and there was so much buzz on that one. Uh, Beasts of the Southern Wild, I think, premiered there too. Um, oh, my goodness. Who's the director of um, This is My Post COVID Brain um, with names? Sometimes I, I miss names, but. Um, uh, she directed the Martin Luther King biopic. Oh. She did uh, Wrinkle in Time. Oh my goodness! We're gonna have to look. You have to Google this. What is it? Yeah. Director of Wrinkle in Time. Director of Wrinkle in Time. Uh, but she was really, really, really cool. Um, Ava Duvernay. There you go, A Ava Duvernay. Yeah, Duvernay. Yeah. Sorry, really, French. really wonderful person. Um, and uh, this is again also embarrassing because um, uh, I know, I know, this is one of the nicest people. Which one? Octavia Spencer. Oh, Octavia yes. Spencer. I couldn't, I couldn't remember her name. Her. I'm so sorry. But no, she came into our theater and oh. like they said, okay, would you please escort, you know, Miss Spencer to the green room? And there she comes out of out of like the SUV or whatever. Mm -hmm. And she takes my arm oh. and she says, Hello, dear. Oh. I said, Hello, Miss Spencer. Welcome to the Egyptian theater. Let's go this way. Oh. And she says, How are you doing, dear? Oh. I said, Ma'am, I'm doing very well. Thank you. How are you enjoying your Sundance? Oh. You know, that That's sort of lovely. thing. Yeah. You should listen yeah. to her episode on Armchair Expert with Doc Shepard. That's, oh. I mean, I love that podcast. Every okay. episode is golden, but hers specifically because Octavia and Dax did um, the Groundlings Theater yeah. improv together and they just tell a bunch of great stories. Yeah. Tell, uh, send me the link. If I you will. Can. I'd love to listen yeah. to that. But yeah, she, uh, Octavia Spencer struck me as a really wonderful person, like a normal, mm -hmm. good human being. Yeah. But one of the funniest stories was um, uh, I, um, oh, it was uh, 23. 12 i think it was the 2012 uh, sundance and like i'm a big science fiction fan right i love sci-fi really <laughs> yeah uh, but i think that's partly because you know i always think a lot about the human future yeah sci-fi good sci-fi i think at least yeah offers visions and how that can be you know but um but yeah i remember in the in the, uh, the 2000s battlestar galactic was it was a, the, the reboot mm. was uh very sort of anti-sci-fi and i really like mm. that because um, it was very violent and gritty and so forth. Um, and uh, the key character, the main character was played by Edward James Olmos. Oh. And um, uh, the show was over and ended for a few years. And then all of a sudden, one day at 7.30 in the morning, Edward James Olmos shows up at the Egyptian theater. And um, uh, he produced a, a film that his uh, son had um, um, had. Uh, uh, I guess directed, yeah, it's called Philly Brown, and it was the premiere of this young, new, talented mm. actress named Gina Rodriguez. Oh wow! Yeah, and um, so 
so at that point, because you know, they said, okay, you can be, you know, Edward James almost is uh, mm-hmm. uh, his his usher, and you know, take care of him and his party. And I'm like, yeah, <laughs> please, you know, You're like, thank also, you so much. Yeah, because um, the character that he plays is Admiral Adama. Oh, okay. uh, it's the name of the character and so you know when he f- first showed up and i was like hey let's you know, take your seats and get res- reserved seating for the talent mm-hmm. and you know for the, the, the filmmakers and i said right this way admiral and he goes because mm-hmm. <laughs> 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 he he loved that character too. Oh, okay yeah. it, was, it wasn't just a role it was really important that's good if it had been yeah. a character he didn't yeah. like he probably would have been like get away from me yeah but the funny part of that story was is that you know like four hours later you know they were still there and ending the, the whole thing and uh, he couldn't find his gloves and it was bitterly cold freezing temperatures uh, that day and so it's theater's empty it's me and eddie james almost like on our hands and knees <laughs> looking underneath the the seats like where are my gloves you know i'm like i don't know i don't know i can't find it. it's like oh i have to buy a new pair you know so, so, i'll come back you know so i'll be back and lost and found you find it you know yeah. see it's like i really like these gloves <laughs> but um but yeah what a, what, a, what a you know just genuine person yeah um so and not an experience yeah. you probably ever would have imagined having oh hell no <laughs> yeah, yeah. exactly but the nice thing was is that you know it goes back again you know why am i doing this you know why why do i freeze my butt off and you know work you know 12 hour shifts and stuff um for free <laughs> yeah, basically for free um and it's really you know to be able to share um the love of film and cinema mm-hmm. yeah um with with people which is to me one of the most beautiful forms of art uh, when it's done well yeah um that uh, that we create in our society so yes there, there are stories very true well congratulations dr klaus this is the longest episode of that anthro podcast but i'm sure that the listeners will dutifully enjoy every second of it you can edit it down don't worry i will not edit it down there's a couple parts that i'll edit out but i can already tell it's going to be an hour 45 okay which I'm honestly, I, I'll tell you who's going to love it. Mm. Amy. Oh, Amy's going to hang Hi, on to Amy. every word. Yeah. We missed you at the meetings this year. <laughs> yes. Uh, she is going to be there next year. Good. And yeah. it's in my stomping ground next year. We're it's in have, LA. We have a lot of student research and also a whole bunch of stuff that I've been sitting on. Mm, just haven't really been working on. Okay. Yeah. So there's going to be a huge George Mason presence at the meetings. Good. Good. But, I'm going to try to set up some yeah. interviews for while I'm there too. Since I'm, I didn't go this oh, year, I'll yeah. be going next year. Take, take um, me to like the Peruvian restaurants that you know in LA (laughs) don't know any Peruvian restaurants in LA yeah anyway thank you so much for your time thank you for your stories both academic and not they're appreciated I like how we like we started and ended with the like non-anthropology stuff but I think that's good you know keep people's attention to the end so thank you so much you're very welcome and just to be on the anthro podcast is is a delight and a joy and you're doing such an awesome job with this and being able to communicate anthropology to to all your listeners it's important stuff it is yes